Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. Today I'm taking us back down south again. It's one that's been on my list for a while and a news article this week actually prompted me to do it. So this is the story of serial killer Stephen Port, known as the Grinder Killer. Caitlin, have you heard of this one? Yes, and I think it's the same as you. I've heard of it through the news, but I don't know all the like itty bitty details. Yeah, pretty much the same. Um, I'm surprised I'd actually heard of this one. So it's it's going to be good. <laughs> um, I'll just begin, and obviously any questions that just shout. Now, Stephen Port was born on the 22nd of February 1975 in Southend on Sea in Essex. When he was a year old, his family moved to Dagenham in East London, where he grew up. He was described as being a loner and was often bullied at school during his childhood. His former teachers also described his personality as quiet. There was also some talk of the fact that a lot of people thought he may have been deaf or hard of hearing because he was that detached and disengaged with other people. Now, after leaving school at age 16, he went to art college but it proved too expensive for his parents, and so he spent two years training as a chef instead. Now, he lived with his parents until his early 30s, and he then lived alone in a flat in Barking in London, and he worked as a chef. He also briefly appeared on an episode of a television show of MasterChef, apparently, which I got online, I couldn't get anything further, so this could also just be nonsense. Now, Stephen came out as gay in his mid-twenties. A former romantic partner of his described his personality as childish and gave that as the reason for ending their relationship. His neighbour described him as having a peculiar childlike personality, exhibiting odd behaviour as a grown man, such as playing with children's toys. So, for example, at one party they were at, they had found Um, the neighbour Ryan had found a toy fire engine during the day and thought oh wow Stephen would love this so his friend that he was with at the time said you can't give a grown man a kid's toy to play with however he was wrong because Ryan the neighbour gave him this toy at the party Stephen loved the toy and he played with it on the floor at the party like a child you know cross-legged yep he'd have no interest of what was going on around him and you know like the social norms of someone his age doing this he just kind of zoned out and and played with this toy at the party now this he would have been in his 30s at this time now that's obviously just a little bit of a background of Stephen it does kind of paint a picture for you I would say um so let's just jump to 2014. Now by this time Stephen had had a few relationships but he was currently single. Now he was one of those people that he had kind of a guy around every night different person but he'd text his neighbour Ryan and be like oh look I've got a new boyfriend you'll have to come and meet him but then the next day it'd be someone different and you know just like that. He did find it difficult to interact with people his own age and kind of people in general when it came to small talk. So in order to find a partner, he mostly used the online dating app Grindr. Now Grindr, this is, you know, Google's version of it. It's a location-based social networking and online dating app for gay, bi, trans and queer people. However, 
I feel it's really more of a hookup site rather than a looking for a long-term relationship one. Now, being through a screen allowed Stephen to construct biographies in which he made false claims. You know, he completely made up his own lifestyle and you can do that when you're behind a screen. So he pretended he had graduated from Oxford University. He had served in the Royal Navy. Another one, he gave his occupation as a special needs teacher and so on. So just things that he thought made him sound great because he was uncomfortable with himself. Now on the app, Stephen would use an older photo of himself where he looked younger. He was described as having an athletic appearance due to regularly going to the gym. He was a bit bald and disguised this in public by wearing a blonde toupee or toupee, sorry. <laughs> and this hairpiece was also professionally... Yeah, I'm just going to let, I don't know the exact stain, so I'm just going to let you say whatever that was. I want to say toupee. Sure. Toupee? Like Donald Trump's toupee. I don't know. Now, it was also fastened, like professionally fastened, and it increased his confidence when meeting other men. Now, Stephen Port contacted his first murder victim, 23-year-old Anthony Walgate, who was a fashion student originally from Hull, who on occasion worked as an escort on the 17th of June 2014. Now Stephen pretends to be a client and offered him £800 for his services and they later met at Barking Station. Now quite quick side note, I, some people get escort and sex worker mixed up, like just as an escort sometimes you just get paid for being there and for your time, it doesn't necessarily lead to sex. Now, at his flat, Stephen drugged Anthony with GHB and he raped him. He died after Stephen gave him a fatal overdose of the drug. In the early morning of the 19th of June, Stephen dragged the body to the pavement outside his flat and used his own mobile phone to call an ambulance. Not given his name, he told an operator that he had been driving past and had seen a young boy who collapsed or had had a seizure or was drunk on the street. He then returned to his flat. Anthony Walgate was pronounced dead. Evidence linking Stephen to Anthony's death was missed at this time and Anthony's death was confirmed by police as an overdose that wasn't linked with any foul play. Anthony's friends had told the police that he had informed them where he was going on the night of his murder to be on the safe side. You know, you tell your friends where you're going to go. And it turns out that he had met up with the same person who had made the 999 call. Yeah, such a crucial thing there. I know you kind of just said that he told his friends, literally always do that. Yeah, like, even you know, if it's my just sister random. And like, yeah, we always do it. And like, you as well, if I'm going somewhere and I don't know somebody or like, even when I went and got my eyelashes done, I didn't know the person that was at their house. And I was like, here's where I am in case I don't apply in like an hour. <laughs> Which is totally acceptable. And, and you should do it. Now, on the 26th of June, Stephen was arrested had his laptop seized and DNA taken. The police put the puzzle together and knew that Stephen was connected in some way or another. And this is when Stephen's story changed. And he said that he had been with Anthony in his flat, Anthony had taken drugs, and then Stephen had left to go to work whilst Anthony slept. He got home from work to find Anthony dead, having taken drugs. In his panic, Stephen carried him outside, called the police and went on with his day. Now, Stephen confirmed that he had done this in the fear that they would have thought that he had killed the guy. The investigators believed him 
and Stephen was relieved, having got away with this. Now, yes, the laptop and things were seized, but they were handed back and nothing was done. There was no further investigation. Exactly. Now, on the 26th of June, he was charged with perverting the course of justice and a trial date of March 2015 was set. But like I said, he was immediately released. He was on bail, but no serious probing was done by the police. It was kind of just left. You know, this is this is an overdose and yeah, you, you got him, you you done the wrong thing by, you know, moving the body, but you know, nothing else really was done wrong. Now between August 2014 and September 2015, Stephen murdered three more men. Gabriel Cavari, who was 22, he had moved to London from Slovakia and had briefly lived with Stephen. Daniel Workworth, 21, from Gravesend in Kent, who worked as a chef, and Jack Taylor, 25, who lived with his parents in Dagenham and worked as a forklift truck driver. Now, we'll go back to the middle two, Gabriel and Daniel. However, at the time of their murders, they were not investigated as murders and, like Anthony, were classed as drug overdoses, you know, with no foul play. All victims had been found in or outside of the same area, St Margaret's Church Graveyard in Barking which was only about 500 metres from Stephen's flat. Two had been found by the same dog walker. These dog walkers, again, just don't get a dog, right? I know, I always say that, it's always a dog walker, but I feel like if I found a body, I'd be taking a different route. Yeah, no, no, she took the same route, found another one. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I would be like, I'm off. So, yeah, the fact that she's then managed to find another body on the same route, no. I wouldn't be walking my dog anywhere. No. (laughs) Now, all had overdosed on the party drug GHB. None of these men were looked at as suspicious by the police, no matter how clear the similarities were. Now, yeah, I'm saying it's clear. You know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I've read the information. I've seen that, look, there's three folk here, all the same stuff. But, you know, the police hadn't seen this. But this obviously caused uproar in the public and especially the LGBTQ plus community because these are victims and they're all gay men, gay young men as well, that have been found with overdoses in the same place. But there was someone targeting these men, but the police were not listening. Now I'm going to jump to the 14th of September 2015, so we're a year ahead, when 25-year-old Jack Taylor's dead body was found in the same position as the others, by the same graveyard wall as the two previous victims. Now, the police, at first again, said this was an overdose without foul play. However, Jack's family could not believe or accept this at all as an answer. Jack was a loving, kind lad who was actually very against drug abuse. He also didn't like to walk alone at night or in the dark, and he would never just walk through the park or hang out in places such as graveyards. So why on earth would he be taking drugs in a graveyard to begin with? Jack lived at home with his parents, and he kept in touch with them regularly, went out to keep them updated on where he would be, returning home, you know, just things like that that you normally do in your family home. Now, on the night of the 13th, he communicates with Stephen on Grinder in the early hours, and he travels to Barkin, arriving at 3am. 
Now, by the 14th, he hadn't returned home or messaged his mum on his whereabouts, so this makes the alarm bell rings. Two days after reporting him missing, the police had turned up at his parents' house to inform them of his death. Two weeks after Jack's death, police showed the family CCTV footage after they had asked for it of Jack meeting a man at Barking train station in the early hours of that morning. In October 2015, the police finally put out an appeal to the public to see who the man in the CCTV was. This eventually led them right back to Stephen Port and it finally made the police properly look into Stephen. Now I say finally because I'm going to jump back to the other two and you'll have your own views on how the police handled it. However, once you hear of the other two deaths, you'd think why on earth did it have to take for a fourth victim and for his family to push and push the police for them to take these murders seriously. So back in 2014, just two months after the murder of Anthony, Stephen was back on Grinder, where he met 22-year-old Gabriel Cavari. On the 23rd of August, Gabriel moved into Stephen's flat. Gabriel was very articulate, well-spoken and was an aspiring artist. He was a kind gentleman who loved to be around company. Stephen had introduced Gabriel to his neighbour Ryan. This was the neighbour who had given him the fire engine toy and had been friends with Stephen to begin with. Until later on when Stephen kind of, his drug taking and party antics had went a bit OTT for Ryan. And anyway, he did go and he wanted to meet Gabriel. So he invited them both round for tea. And when Stephen was at the bathroom, Gabriel had said to Ryan that he is not who you think he is. He is a bad man. Clearly, Gabriel wasn't enjoying living with Stephen. So Ryan kept in touch and they texted. After a few days, the texts stop. So Ryan asks Stephen why. Stephen says that he has gone and he doesn't know where he went. His story then changed that he went to meet up with some army guy. And then it changed that Stephen was worried about his whereabouts. And then it changed again that he had moved back home, picked up an illness and died. On the 28th of August, Gabriel's body is found propped up in a sitting position against the graveyard wall at St Margaret's Church, 500 metres from Stephen's flat. Again, this death was classed as an overdose with no foul play. Stephen had gotten away with it. Again. A few weeks later, on the 18th of September, Stephen arranged to meet up with 21-year-old Daniel Whitworth in Barking. Daniel was from Gravesend, Kent. He was an active and intelligent outdoor boy who loved days on his bike. He was a chef and he was really passionate about cooking. So I guess they would have had that in common as well. So that's another thing for them to bond over and meet up. Now on the 20th of September, his body was found propped up in a sitting position against the same graveyard wall. With an apparent suicide note, written by Stephen in an attempt to frame Daniel for Gabriel's death. And it's in his oh. left hand. Mm-hmm. Wow, he... this is all getting a bit wild, isn't it? Exactly. Now, he had been in a relationship with a living boyfriend for three years and his friends insisted he would never have taken his own life. Now, I get the fact is you can insist your friend would never take their own life, but it's one of those things. However, 
This is very suspicious. Now, the fake suicide note, it didn't make any sense at all. There were no names mentioned. He was talking in the wrong context, as in telling a story. He wasn't addressing anyone in particular. The letter said things like, don't blame the guy I was with last night. It was only sex. Now, what a strange thing to put in your suicide letter. Also, who's the guy you was with? Why not mention the name? And it also mentioned things like, oh, and my family this and my family that. And it's not saying that he's speaking to his family in this note. It makes no sense at all. Now, flash forward, it was shown that Stephen had actually written this letter with his left hand. Now, the police didn't issue any public appeal and no investigation into the death of the three men were in place. Now, the pink See, knew... just going back to that note, that's a really tricky one because that's a very personal thing and it's not like he knew them. Like, I could probably write a note that I could probably do in your, like, words, you know what I mean? But when you don't know somebody, how on earth are you going to write a note pretending to be them when you don't know, like, the way they speak or anything like that? Exactly. And it wasn't looked into really much. Whereas, and like, it... I feel like I would read that, but that's not Samantha. Yeah, and everybody around him did. Like, his family, mm-hmm. his friends, and they were all saying... This, this isn't Daniel. This makes no sense at all. Mm-hmm. But nothing. Now, the Pink News and other LGBTQ plus activist groups went to the police to inform them that there were worries and concerns. However, they were all reassured by the police that nothing suspicious or unusual about all three deaths had happened. Now, jump to the 23rd of March 2015. Stephen Port pleads guilty to perverting the course of justice in the case of the Anthony Walgate's death and he's sentenced to eight months imprisonment but he's released with an electronic tag on the 4th of June so just two months in jail he served for that but this is remember is only for him calling the police and then moving the body and, and making up an absolute nonsense it's nothing to do with actually murdering because the police still think there's no murders now, after the stint in jail, it obviously didn't deter Stephen one bit because he went on to murder Jack in September. Now, on the 15th of October 2015, Stephen Port was arrested on suspicion of causing the deaths of all four men. Now, the police had originally believed that all four deaths were self-administered drug overdoses. But with Jack, the final victim, his family pushing and pushing the police and then getting that CCTV footage put out and then the public linking it back to Stephen, they finally had to listen. Now, that's not me saying the other families weren't pushing the police. They, of course, were, but nothing was done with that. So in October 2015, they seized Stephen's laptop, mobile phone, and they begin to finally question him. The police also interrogated him about his internet search history that they hadn't looked at before, but it now shows that it included things such as boy drug rape in his search engine. His hard drive also contained videos of of him having sex with unconscious men. Now, under questioning, he admitted that he had met his third victim, Daniel, at a sex party, but that he knew nothing of his death. He also claimed that he hadn't administered drugs to anyone and he denied killing all four young men. The police weren't fooled by this well-spoken, I'm not involved act, finally, 
and on the 18th of October 2015, he was arrested and charged with all four murders of Anthony Walgate, Gabriel Cavari, Daniel Whitworth and Jack Taylor. In July 2016, Stephen was charged with the rape of eight more victims between 2011 and October 2015. For this trial, Stephen had in total 22 offences against 11 men. This included the four murders, four rapes, four sexual assaults and 10 counts of, administered, of administering a substance with intent. Now, the trial lasted four weeks. The jury gave evidence such as Stephen's DNA being found on Gabriel's sunglasses and Daniel's clothes. Handwriting experts also concluded that Daniel did not write his suicide note. Now, on a side note to that, with obviously Stephen having been taken and charged for the murders and the, the note not having been had been proved, sorry, to not have been Daniel, his stepmom and dad were told this and in an interview you can see it you know I recommend you go on YouTube and all that jazz to to listen to these they probably give way more better information than what I've given you but it's crazy and kind of sad as well that fact is for a slight moment Daniel's stepmom was relieved that he didn't take his own life and that it was murder but just for a split second you know to say that Daniel wasn't actually in a bad place it wasn't that he needed help he you know but he just couldn't ask for it it was in fact murder which gives you a tiny bit of peace but then obviously it was murder if that makes sense now at the old bailey on the 25th of november 2016 mr justice openshaw sentenced stephen port to life imprisonment with a whole life order now this means that he'll be in prison for life without parole so more notorious figures such as myra hindley and dennis nielsen are folk who are also on this whole life order list it's not something that everybody gets and he is incarcerated in hmp belmarsh now, the killings were not seen by police as suspicious until after the final death. The Independent Office for Police Conduct reinvestigated the Met over its initial handling of their cases. As, let's be honest, it was a bit of a mess and things were missed and the deaths just were not investigated enough. No evidence wasn't taken, some was ignored and unfortunately did not paint the police in a very good light. Now, I'm not blaming them or anything like that. However, you know, you can paint your own picture of this. Did all four men have to die? I think not. Now, an inquest jury found a large number of very serious and very basic investiga investigative failings by the police. Now, a lawyer representing the families has said throughout the case that they believe the police's actions were driven by homophobia and also previously said the Met had blood on their hands. Now, on Monday just past, the 29th of August 2022, the Met announced it had handled civil claims with the relatives of Mr Walgate and Cavari, as well as Whitworth. However, Jack Taylor and Daniel Whitworth have yet to settle. Now, a force spokesperson said, we have previously apologised to the families for the police feelings in this matter and understand the impact these have had and the distress caused. We apologise again now. 
our thoughts and sympathies are with the families as always. And that is the story of serial killer Stephen Port. So when, when I had said to you that I'd heard of it, like through the news and stuff, I actually realised there's also a drama um, called Four Lives, which is based on this as well. Yeah, I would give that a watch. Which is, is really, on... really good. It's actually got like a really good cast. It's got like Sheridan Smith and stuff in it. Oh, fantastic. I like Sheridan um, Smith. I actually can't remember. I want to say it's either ITV or 4 or something. It's not okay. a BBC one. It's either ITV or 4, but that's really, really good. I would give that a watch and they kind of tell you all about the families and everything like that. So that's really, really good. Definitely worth seeing. Absolutely. Do you have any kind of thoughts? It does actually say BBC One. I've just looked. I've just oh. uh, looked up <laughs> BBC One, so you could probably get it on BBC iPlayer or yeah, YouTube or something. Um, there is quite a lot on this. Um, I did kind of narrow it down to kind of fit it all in and not, you know, have a really long yeah. one. But there's a lot with in interviews of you know their sisters or parents and things like that so it is worth watching if you want to find out more information or you know just kind of have a have a watch of something um but yeah 